Hi, everybody. Welcome to Vox Tablet, the podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Today, we take a new look at the story of Purim. The book of Esther is a fairly short story in the Bible. It tells the story of a young Jewish woman, that is Esther, of course, who basically saves her people from genocide. It's got heroics and intrigue and theatrics and is the reason for the holiday of Purim, which begins this evening. Robert Alter is a professor of comparative literature at UC Berkeley. He's got a new translation of the Book of Esther that's just out. It's part of a larger project translating all the books of the Bible, and we'll be speaking with Robert Alter about Esther in just a moment. But first, it's time for Vox Beat. For a lot of people, Purim's arrival means one thing. Passover is just around the corner. We've teamed up with a project called Seder 2015 to find out some of the best or worst things that have happened at your Seders. Here's a little story that Dina Robertson shared. In our house, it's all about the matzah ball. And one year, my other aunt decided that she would really like to tackle the matzah ball making. So we were all supportive. She made the matzah ball. We have a very large Passover. We have about 50 people. And the matzo balls start getting taken out, and they are as hard as rocks. And the family starts freaking out because we literally crave and die for those matzo balls. We wait for them all year because my other aunt is so incredible at them. So instead of crying and instead of mourning the rock-hard matzo balls, we decided to do target practice. So we all took out the rock-hard matzo balls because they were so solid. And all the young kids, all the old parents, everyone took matzo balls and started whipping them at the trees outside and target practice because they were rock-hard. So (laughs) made a bad situation into a very, very memorable Passover moment. That's Dina Robertson. But what about you? Did something funny or crazy happen at a Seder of yours? You want to tell us about it? Well, we want to hear it. So record your answers. We want the recordings to be no more than two minutes. And it's very easy to send a recording of you to us. Here's what you do if you have an iPhone. Go to voice memos in your utilities folder and record your answer. Then click on the upward facing arrow under the play button. That gives you the option to email your recording to us. And you're going to send it to podcast at tabletmag.com. If you've got an Android, you are basically going to do the same thing through Google Keep, which is an app on your telephone. It has the same functionality as a voice memo. So record yourselves, hit the button to send your recording via email, and you're sending it to podcast at tabletmag.com. We will post some of the most captivating answers, so get to it and send your answers to us by March 16th. Now then, back to Purim. Purim's a holiday that celebrates the story of Esther. If you recall, she's the heroine who, with the help of her cousin, Mordechai, saved the Jews from a plot devised against them by Haman, who is an advisor to King Ahasuerus. Esther was the king's queen. The story is recounted in Megillat Esther, or the Book of Esther, which is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's also the only book that doesn't mention the name of God, and that's just one feature that sets it apart from all the other biblical texts. 
The scholar Robert Alter has spent years working on new translations of all the books of the Bible. His take on the book of Esther appears in the newest edition of these translations, and he's joining us today to talk a little bit about it. Robert Alter, welcome to Vox Tablet. Happy to be here. Tell me, what, if anything, do we know of the origins of the book of Esther? Well, we have no idea who wrote it. Um, But this is true of almost all the books of the Bible except the the prophets. What we can reasonably conclude is approximately when it was written. Uh, It was certainly written under the Persian Empire and probably after the Jews had been under the Persian rule for at least a few decades. So th- this takes us to probably the 400s be- before the Common Era. In your introduction to the book of Esther, you write, of the several biblical books that test the limits of the canon, Esther may well be the most anomalous. How so? What makes it exceptional? Well, as, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, the name of God is never mentioned. Uh, there, there is one other book of the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned, and that's the Song of Songs. Uh. So the name of God is not mentioned, but that's a symptom of something else. I would say that the um, the worldview of the book of Esther is fundamentally secular and, let's say, nationalistic. Um, That is, not only is God never mentioned, uh, the Torah is never mentioned, the covenant is never mentioned, the land of Israel is never mentioned. So we don't have any sense that these Jews are observing religious law. They're just observing their own uh, regulations and uh, ethnic practices. So that's part of it. What I would add is it seems to me that this book is really written for entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to think of another book in the Bible that's remotely like that. In what way uh, is it written for entertainment? Well, it's a pleasing fairy tale. Uh That that is, (laughs) the, the Jews are threatened by this sinister figure, Haman, they're all, all going to have their throats slit on the, the 14th of Adar. And uh, a beautiful young woman who is Jewish but uh, for the time being conceals the fact that she's a Jew is the one who is chosen of all the beautiful virgins of the kingdom to be the new queen. And then she becomes the instrument for saving her people. So that's a kind of pleasing fantasy. That, that is, you cannot make any case that this is based on a historical event. Um, it's also entertaining in the sense that it's amusing. There are scenes that are highly satiric, uh, scenes that verge on farce. So it's all quite pleasing in that way. Why is it included in the biblical canon? What purpose does it serve in that anthology? Uh, Okay, I have two answers for that. Um, I should start by saying, which is a a well-known fact, that in uh, the 
archive in the caves at Qumran, uh, at the Dead Sea, at least some fragments of every single book of the Bible were found, including books that you might think are kind of uh, heretical, like Kohelet, that is Ecclesiastes, or Job, but not a single word from the book of Esther. Maybe that's just an accident, but the, the more likely conclusion is that the people at Qumran, who were very intense pietists, thought that this really did not belong in the canon, and they didn't keep any copies of the text, and their scribes did not copy the text. So uh, let's say there was not total unanimity in the community of Jews um, around the end of the pre-Christian era as to whether this should be part of the canon. But I think that there are two reasons. There's an obvious one and then one which um, I would like to underline maybe as a, a literary reader of the Bible. The, the obvious one is this. There's certainly no mention of a holiday, anything like Purim, in the, the Torah. But at the end of the book of Esther, you have a whole chapter that underlines the idea that this is a, a major thing that's happened. The Jews were saved from destruction, and every year in every town and every city, Jews uh, are obliged to celebrate the, this holiday. Now, where does all that come from? Look at the calendar. Depending on uh, how things wander in our lunar calendar, uh, the, the holiday of Purim tends to come out within two or three weeks of Mardi Gras. And uh, other cultures, even non-Christian cultures, have some kind of carnivalesque holiday like this at the very beginning of the spring. So uh, it probably has to do with the annual cycle. That is... uh, Everybody has been through the, the cold and rain. There wouldn't have been much snow in the, the Near East uh, of, of winter. And this may not seem to be the case in New York right now, but um, <laughs> uh, now we have the promise of spring. So we take one day to celebrate an experience of uh, relief where people feast and they drink and um, put on costumes. So uh, I think that sometime in the Persian period, the Jews, maybe from uh, Persian influences that we don't know a lot about, adopted this just-before-spring festival which was a, a, a holiday of feasting and drinking and rejoicing. And then they needed some rationale to perpetuate the holiday. And the rationale is this story with its legalistic stipulations about keeping the holiday at the end of the story. So that's half the explanation. Uh-huh. What's the other half? The other half has to do with the fact that people cherish the story. 
just as I, I would, uh, uh, another um, challenging text from the point of view of what is the canon uh, of the five that I've now translated is the Song of Songs. Mm-hmm. And as we know, the rabbis and then the church fathers found ways to justify it by reading it allegorically. But uh, the Song of Songs is... Uh, among the most beautiful love poetry that's come out of the whole ancient world. And I think people just adored these poems and they didn't want to give them up. So they found a way to include the book in the canon. And with Esther too, I I think it was such a delightful story. Uh, All these amusing representations of the kind of doddering, fumbling, highly manipulable uh, King Ahasuerus of the dastardly Haman who then becomes uh, a sputtering, foiled villain who gets his just desserts, the beautiful uh, Jewish queen and so forth. It it was just such a delight that people say, hey, we we have to hang on to this. And, And so that, as well as the holiday, I think, pushed them to include it in the canon. Um, what, it sounds like it was particularly fun to translate this book because of— Oh, yes, all, it was. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, in this whole undertaking of translating all the books of the Bible, I'm sure there are moments that are are incredibly enchanting, but there must be vast uh, swaths of time in which, uh, dare I say, it, it's a little bit drudge-like work. Uh, how do you find the, the anchors to sort of make it fresh for yourself? Uh, That's a a probing question, Sarah. (laughs) Uh, It started for me when, after I had translated a couple of uh, really delicious books, that is Genesis and uh, the David story, which are the two, I think, greatest narratives that we have in the Hebrew Bible, my editor at W.W. W. Norton proposed that I do uh, the five books of Moses. And I thought, oh, my gosh, Leviticus. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, a- after it came out, I uh, met an acquaintance uh, outside Yom Kippur services. Um, the book had just been published. And he said, tell me, do you think your translation put zing into the book of Leviticus. <laughs> I said, well, not really. So as you say, there are stretches that are not very exciting. And um, of the five books I've just translated, um, I would say that uh, there's a lot in Daniel that I find kind of off-putting. I mean, you know, there's Daniel in the lion's den and uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and and Abednego in the fiery furnace, which is fun, but there are things that that are not so great. So I I guess I have developed a mindset where I said this is a body of books produced over nearly a thousand years. This is, you know, when we talk about the Bible is the good book or the, 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 the greatest book that was ever written, we rather distort it because it's obviously an anthology and not a single book. So it, it's a, a collection of books that uh, span almost a thousand years, and there are all kinds of wonderful things in it. 
but then there were desert stretches. Uh, and uh, basically, I say to myself, when I'm wandering through the desert, as the <laughs> children of Israel did for 40 years, that, that okay, it's really worth doing the whole thing, and you have to get through this part too. Let's go back to the book of Esther for a moment. Sure. I wonder, Robert, in translating the book of Esther, uh, has your view on any of the characters changed? Just slightly. Um, I, I mean, of course, uh, as with most of the books of the Bible, I've been reading and rereading uh, the text in the Hebrew since adolescence. So, uh, you know, I'm very familiar with it, and, and over the years uh, I've developed certain ideas about it. Uh, and then uh, when I began, before I was a translator of the Bible, uh, I had become a literary critic of the Bible, and in, in writing a book on uh, biblical narrative and uh, and then subsequent essays on biblical narrative. Uh, of course, I gave a lot of thought to the characters. But you do notice certain things when you translate because th there's nothing I, – I, I tell this to my students because I'm currently teaching a course on literary translation for graduate students at Berkeley – that there is nothing like translation to – put you into very intimate contact with the text because, you know, you have to ask yourself at every tiny juncture of the text, why did the writer do it this way and not that way? So uh, I'll mention one thing. This has to do with the character of Ahasuerus. Um, one thing I noticed as I translated was that he hardly speaks in the first part of the story, and he does very little speaking afterwards. But what happens, uh, if you look you know, right in the first chapter uh, of the book, when um, he's been having this uh, six-month-long drinking party for, for his cronies, and he wants to bring Queen Vashti to display her beauty, and then she refuses, uh, one of his courtiers then makes a long speech, I'll tell you what you have to do, king. You know, you can't let this go on. You know, th these uh, uppity women are going to be rebelling all over the, the empire. And he goes on with, with these instructions. And then pretty much the way the, uh, the dialogue is balanced, or I should say unbalanced, is that the king says, okay. And this happens again and again in the first uh, part of the book. So, uh, what I realized uh, as I was translating is that Ahasuerus is represented as a kind of um, royal dummy. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, he, he, uh, whatever people tells him, he, he seems to nod his head and, and go ahead and do, which is then, again, why he assents to, to this cockeyed proposal of uh, of Haman to have to give him permission to slaughter all the Jews. Now, I, I might add, in the spirit of Purim, um, that there is um, there's probably some kind of sly suggestion, not only about the king's intelligence but about the king's virility. Uh, that is, first, the mechanism to decide on a new queen 
is uh, again determined by one of his courtiers who goes on at great length about bringing all the beautiful virgins from the far reaches of the empire. Uh, and uh, the in Sunday school, of course, they represent this uh, as a beauty contest. Right. But, but uh, of course, it's not at all a beauty contest. What happens is that after e- each of these... Uh, Beautiful Virgins has been dunked uh, six months in myrrh and frankincense and six months in other unguents and perfumes. So she's very fragrant uh, and uh, very, shall I say, lubricated. Uh, she's, <laughs> uh, she's brought to the royal bed. Uh, and this is explicit in the text. It says, in the evening she came, in the morning she went. Uh-huh. So... I think that there's a, something satirical going on there because you wonder, hey, this is going on for a year and he's having another virgin every night? Uh, you know, uh, is this realistic? Is he really up to it? <laughs> uh, and then young, beautiful Esther comes and he concludes, that's it. She's the one. And... There's at least a sneaking possibility. Uh, I, I don't say this is in any way explicitly said in, in the, the, the text. Uh, maybe he was having some problems with, with the others. Uh, the, the reason why uh, I make this sneaky inference is what looks like a, uh, a body illusion when Haman, I'm sorry, when Mordecai comes to his adopted daughter and says to her, you know, you have to go to the king and plead for your people. Uh, As we recall, she's hesitant. And she says, you know what court protocol is? Uh, Whoever comes to the court unbidden, he has a single sentence to be killed unless the king extends to him his golden wand. So I suspect, uh, of course, when she comes, the king extends to her his golden wand, which looks to me like a a sly phallic reference. Interesting. Much racier than I ever thought the Book of Esther would be. Oh, yes, I think it is. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you this one last question. Sure. (laughs) Are you dressing up for Purim? And if so, what will you be? Well, I haven't always dressed up for Purim, but I have a, a um, an absolutely delightful four-year-old granddaughter here in Berkeley who says she's going to dress as a waitress for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think in my um, uh, grandfatherly obligation, uh, I need to dress as um, something or other. So... Uh, uh, we discovered cleaning out closets, which is a great domestic virtue. I recommend it to all listeners. <laughs> uh, we discovered a kind of wild Mexican mask with feathers and things. So I, I think I might use that mask and then try to figure out the clothing to go with it. Sounds great. Robert Alter, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Sarah. Robert Alter is a professor of comparative literature at the University of California at Berkeley. He's also a translator. His new book is called Strong as Death is Love, 
It's a translation with commentary of the Song of Songs in the books of Ruth, Esther, Jonah, and Daniel. It's out now from W.W. Norton. Tell us, dear listener, what did you think of our podcast today? And especially, what do you think of our new format, the twofer that we're giving you, where we lead with a quick segment before settling into a longer conversation? Do you love it? Do you hate it? What do you think? Send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. Don't be bashful. That's it for today. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. You can follow me on Twitter for podcast news and other random musings. Thank you all so much for listening and have a very happy Portland.